God, we pray now that you would open our eyes, that we will see wonderful things in your word. Help us to apply those things to our lives. Help us to live them consistently. Bless the preparation, the proclamation of this word. May you be glorified, your people blessed in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Again, I invite you to turn with me to the eighth chapter of the gospel according to St. Mark. And I want to shine the the sermonic spotlight on verse 34, which reads, When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I want to continue our series of sermons today as we make our way towards Resurrection Sunday from the subject journeying to the cross, the cost of discipleship. We're in our journey to the cross series of sermons. Today, our focus will be upon the cost of discipleship. Some months ago, I had need of some tires uh, for our car, and so I called our mechanic, who has been very good to us. I'm working specifically on our, our on our Volvo, and I called him up, and and I said to him, I said, I need some tires. Do you sell tires? He says, Yes. I I said, Well, how much are these tires going to cost me? Isn't that a typical response, right? I mean, you want to know the cost of of something. So I asked him what the cost of these tires will be. And then I went on to tell my mechanic that I'm looking for something good and cheap. Isn't that good? I mean, I thought that was pretty good. I mean, I was just up front with him. I said, I'm looking for some tires good and cheap. But the response that I got from him caught me by surprise. In fact, I had never received this response before from anybody. And and this was his response. He said to me in form of a question and then a statement, he says, do you want cheap or do you want good? Because the two usually don't go together. Wow. Do you want cheap tires or do you want good tires? Because the two usually don't go together. They're not one and and the same. Maybe I should have used the word reasonable tires instead of cheap. But be that as it may, his words caused me to think about my choice of tires and the purpose for which I was purpose for which I was purchasing them. I wanted good over cheap because the safety of my wife, the safety of my family, the safety of others on the road and the safety of myself depended upon it somewhat. And needless to say, I dug a little deeper in my pocket. And I purchased a very good set of tires. And to this day, I'm so glad that I did because maybe about a month or so ago, 
uh, traveling on 98, I picked up a screwdriver in one of my tires that put a hole in it and um, had never had that happen before. And had I been riding on a cheaper tire, perhaps I may not be here today. Instead of blowing out, the tire actually had a leak and uh, Deacon Jay, who was with us this morning, was so kind as to uh, change my tire for me. I was trying, but I wasn't having much success, and so he changed it for me. Thank you, Deacon Jay. But the truth of the matter is, for every worthwhile endeavor in life, there's cost involved. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, if it's worthwhile, there's a cost involved. College students pay a cost to get that degree. Yeah, you can do it cheaper uh, through degree meals on, uh, or some other mail order, but to really work at it and get a degree that's really worth something in the eyes of the academic community, you got to pay the cost, burn the midnight oil, etc., etc., etc. To build strong marriages, there's a cost involved. And any of you who've been married for any length of time know that puppy love and running off the fuel of the honeymoon will only take you so far. You got to have commitment. You got to have grace. You got to have forgiveness. There's a cost involved. Building strong families, building strong friendships and interpersonal relationships, there's a cost involved. Building strong communities and strong churches, there are costs involved. Building strong schools and businesses, there is a cost involved. And those who dare to say differently will be prime candidates to sell you oceanfront property in Arizona. In today's scripture lesson, Jesus candidly points out the cost of uh, involved for all who desire to be his followers, to be his disciples. And as Kyle Eidemann points out in his book entitled Not a Fan, very good book, I would recommend it. He, he Eidemann points out that Jesus was not interested in building a fan club. But he wanted people who were radically sold out to him and willing to follow him wherever he led them. New York Times best-selling author Lee Strobel writes, the dictionary defines a fan as, and I quote, an enthusiastic admirer, end quote. Fans want to get close enough to Jesus to get all the benefits, but not close enough that it requires sacrifice, end quote. In today's text, Jesus point makes it clear that he wants more than a fan club. He wants more than people who are willing on Sunday morning to clap and, and celebrate that has his place. But he wants more than that. He wants followers who are radically sold out to him with every street of their lives, every road of their lives, every avenue, every parkway, every expressway of our lives, our travel, he wants it completely under his sovereign 
In other words, he does not want one street that we travel that's not under his exclusive sovereign rule and reign. Something else to make note of when it comes to following Jesus. And I love this, particularly in this 21st century. I love this. Jesus never sugarcoats the call to discipleship. Have you noticed that? Things like birds of the air have nests. Foxes have holes. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus never sugarcoats. The call to discipleship. You never find Jesus offering easy living, increased salaries, beautiful five bedroom homes, three car garages in gated communities, that his servants, that his people will all be able to fly in private jets. He never promised that there will always be perfect health and perfect relationships, nor did he promise us success in the eyes of the world. And although these things may become realities for some, and although some will recognize such realities as God's blessings to them to be used for his glory and honor and to be used for the furtherance of his kingdom agenda. Jesus never promised such things to those who would become his followers. If he allows it, if he blesses it, you with it, that's great. It's to be used for his glory and his honor, but he never promised these things. No, what Jesus promised was something like Churchill who when he took over as prime minister of England offered men blood, tall, tears, and sweat. Or like a famous Italian general who appealed for recruits in these terms. Imagine this, a sign saying, Uncle Sam wants you. And beneath the sign it reads, I offer neither pay nor provisions. I offer hunger, thirst, forced marches, battles, and even death. Let him who loves his country in his heart and not with his lips only follow me. How many people do you think will be signing up? Now, I know this flies in the face of Christianity in our modern-day cultural the, the modern-day culture uh, of beautiful sanctuaries with all the trimmings and comfort that accompanies them. And I know it's strange to talk in a land where uh, the most, I know this is strange talk in a land where the most important item on many of the agendas after worship on Sunday is where are we going to eat But let's not get it confused as we journey towards the cross. What Jesus teaches about following him is far different than what many modern day expressions of Christianity have grown into. For many, Christianity today is about easy believism instead of deep biblical study. It's about meism instead of personal sacrifice. 
It's about conference and, and conveniences instead of work and toil and faithfully plowing through the difficulties and the challenges following Jesus sets before us. So let's examine the text to get our Lord's perspective beginning in verse 34 where he called the people to himself with his disciples. These are the 12 apostles and he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. First, Jesus says, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Warren Wiersbe, former pastor of the historical Moody Church in Chicago, makes a distinction between denying self and self-denial. Listen carefully. I believe this is worth highlighting. Wiersbe wrote, we practice self-denial when for a good purpose we occasionally give up things or activities. Like now we're in the season of Lent and so we, we, we per- practice according to Wisby. Self-denial when we give up the cake. We give up the meat for 40 days. We give up the television, we, whatever it is. But the truth of the matter is, as soon as the 40-day period of Lent is over, we go right back to whatever it is we were doing. In fact, whatever we've given up, we go back to get it with even greater passion. So we raid the store shelves and we raid the cabinets for whatever it is we've been missing for the last 40 days. Where's we go on to say we deny self when we surrender ourselves to Christ and determine to obey his will. Do you see the difference? You see, here's the reality. People are often willing to give up things or activities for a season or on a temporary basis. But to surrender self to sacrifice self, to place self under the sovereign control of Jesus, to bring all of our ambitions, all of our dreams, all of our desires, our goals, our objectives, our priorities, our policies, our plans, our practices, our strategies, our tactics, and our approaches, and lay them at the feet of Jesus and say to him Lord not my will but thine be done that's a totally different story but that's what Jesus is talking about that's what Jesus means when he says whoever desires to come after me let him deny himself not for a moment not for a, a day not for 40 days but for a lifetime let him deny himself not going to force you and I or anyone else to follow him. He's not going to pull us into a relationship with him, kicking and and screaming. He's not going to beat us into submission. He's not going to bribe us or barter us or bully us into discipleship, submission. No, he simply says, whoever desires to come after me, let him, the door, the, the, the handle on the door is on the inside. Let him deny him or herself. 
You see, self-denial is a choice we all get to make. We can accept it or we can reject it, but it's a choice. Footnote. This is a good lesson for the church to learn and practice. I, I had to learn and practice this. I've been preaching almost 40 years and, and, and been in pastoral chaplaincy leadership for most of that time, but I had to learn this lesson. And sometimes uh, the hard way I, I learned it. We must stop spinning our wheels, running after people who continuously reject Jesus' offer of discipleship. We are to love people. We are to pray for people. We are to encourage people. Don't miss this. But until they are ready to come after Jesus by denying themselves, they will continue to play games, play on your emotions, misuse church time, talent, and resources. During this season of Lent, people give up certain things or activities for 40 days, but when the 40-day period ends, many people will go back to what it was they gave up. But when we truly dethrone self, get self out of the driver's seat, give Jesus controlling interest in our lives, in our affairs, in our dealings, we're fulfilling the mandate of Jesus to deny ourselves. Second, Jesus continues, whoever desires to come after me, let him take up his cross. When Jesus used the practical picture of cross bearing as a symbol of what it means, uh, what following him involves, the people got the point. They may not have agreed with it. They may not have accepted it. But they knew exactly what he meant. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Have you heard and gotten the meaning of what someone meant? You may not agree with it. You may not accept it. But you know exactly what they mean. You know exactly where they stand. Where this is where the disciples and the people were with Jesus. They would have clearly understood the logic of the cross example because they knew what the cross stood for. The cross stood for death to all who dared defy Roman rule and authority. In all probability, they had witnessed numerous occasions or at least heard of people who suffered political, social, economic, and even religious persecution and death by way of crucifixion because they were out of line, out of step with Rome. The old adage says, while in Rome... Do as the Romans do is a way of saying, go along with the system. Go along with the status quo. Go along with the powers to be. Go along just to get along. Or you suffer the consequences. The cross was a symbol of suffering, not always because a person was wrong, but simply because a person was wrong. Get this. In the eyes of Rome. So it was when Jesus said, whoever desires to come after me must take up his cross. He was saying, whoever desires to follow me 
must be willing to stay with me even when it's not popular. Stay with me even though it's not pleasant. Stay with me even though it's not peaceful. Stay with me when the thunder of rejection for my sake roars. Stay with me when the lightning of retaliation flashes in your face because you stand for my causes. Stay with me even while the winds of ridicule blow against you, trying to force you to compromise your convictions. Stay with me because that's what cross-bearing is all about. He said to his disciples, stay with me in the face of Rome. And he says to us, stay with me in the face of whatever the opposition is, the pressure for you to conform. Stay with me. Hymn writer Thomas Shepard meant well and shares light on the matter of cross bearing when he wrote the words must Jesus bear. The cross alone. And all the world go free. No, there's a cross for everyone. And there's a cross for me. There's a cross for us. There's a cross for good hope. He goes on to say, and I love this, the consecrated cross I'll bear. To death shall set me free and then go home my crown to wear. For there's a crown. For me. In a very real sense, the adage is true. No cross, no crown. Third, Jesus says in verse 34, whoever desires to come after me, let him follow me. There are a lot of places that Jesus' disciples could have gone, a lot of people that they could follow, a lot of systems, a lot of philosophies, a lot of ideologies. But he says, come and follow me. The initial initial decision to follow Jesus and be his disciples is a once and for all act when we take it seriously. From then on, the believer is no longer his or her own. The apostle Paul states the matter in this fashion in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Paul wrote, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things are become or have become new. To follow Jesus is also a moment-by-moment decision. Because we're constantly enticed, we're constantly encouraged, we are constantly challenged to step off the path of righteousness. But it's a moment-by-moment decision. And it requires denial of self, taking up one's cross. Following Jesus means taking the same road of sacrifice and service and even suffering as he took. The blessing for us is that we have the assurance of his presence, 
of his peace and of his power all along the journey. Isn't that enough for you to shout hallelujah over? Yes, there are challenges. Yes, there are tests. Yes, there are trials. But we have the greatest power in all the world in us every step of the way. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is in us. We have the promise of his presence, his peace, and his power along the way. We are not walking alone tomorrow on your job. Remember that you are not alone today. Remember that you are not alone in the next controversy, the next battle, the next fight. Remember that you are not alone. As we follow Jesus, we need not fret. We need not fear. We need not faint because of circumstances, situation, forecasts, projections, because our God is with us. And surely, 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 if he can calm the rage and see, if he can walk on the water, if he can heal the sick, if he raise the dead, get out of the grave with all power in his hands, surely he will take care of us as we follow him. Discipleship involves buying into a person, the personage of Jesus who is greater than us and buying into a mission that's larger than anything we can imagine. And so I'll close with this true story that clarifies the point. In the mid-1800s, Henry Dunant was a wealthy 30-year-old Swiss banker. He went to France to meet Napoleon about a business venture that he knew would make both he make him very rich. And when he arrived in France, he was told that the general had already gone off to war, which was being fought nearby. So do not be in the aggressive entrepreneur that he was got on his horse and took off and went to the battlefield hoping to catch Napoleon before the battle began. But when he arrived at the top of the hill overlooking the field where they were fighting, he noticed he was already too late for the fighting had already begun. He saw the cavalry groups charge and collide. He saw bloodshed. He heard screams. He saw men dying. And he was so affected by what he saw until he stayed in town for three weeks, helping those who had been injured and helping to bury the dead. Henry Durant was a man who found another passion. He devoted his life and his entire fortune, founded an organization to help people who were in need. He was awarded the first Nobel Peace Prize, which came with a very large sum of money, which he gave it all away to the cause he founded. He died penniless in a poor house after he awarded, after what he was awarded the first Nobel Peace Prize with a handsome sum of money. After having been wealthy, he died penniless in a poor house. 
yet he was a disciple of the cause that consumed him. That cause we know today as the American Red Cross. The question on the floor is, as we journey towards the cross, what cause is consuming you and what cause is consuming me? Where are our passions? What is it that drives us? Is it being a disciple of Jesus? Is that driving you? Is it the reality that he suffered and bled and died on Calvary's cross to save poor wretched sinners like you and me? What, what is it that drives us? This question begs to be answered. Are we consumed with the burning passion of discipleship that drives our devotion to follow him wherever he leads at all.